Let's turn in the Word of God to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll read the first seven verses. Luke 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. To that point we read God's holy word. Our text is the first verse of this chapter and the first verse of Mark chapter 1. Luke 2 verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And then turn back to the book of Mark. Mark 1, verse 1, where Mark, by inspiration, writes this to begin his epistle, his recounting of the good news of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Beloved of God, in Galatians 4, verse 4, which we did not read this morning, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was born in the fullness of time. That is, God, before he created anything, had decreed the exact moment when Jesus would be born into the world. And all the Old Testament is like a cup. And as the years go by, it's like water filling up that cup until the cup of time through the Old Testament is full. And when it's so full that not one drop more can be added, that's when Jesus is born. Just when God had determined. He wasn't born a day too early or a day too late, but right when God wanted him to be born, the fullness of time. Why did God want him to be born at that time and not at another time? Well, for one thing, there was the peace of the Roman Empire. There was the freedom for the apostles of Jesus Christ to move through the empire and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ throughout. There was a road system that went through the empire so that the Apostle Paul and others could freely move. There was one language through the empire so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be brought to the entire empire. 
There were Jews who were scattered throughout the empire so that almost every city Paul enters in, there's a synagogue where he can begin his mission work and have a a center from which he will bring the gospel. But there was this too. In addition to that, it was the right time. Because it was a time when the pride of men was expressing itself in a way that it had not before in that empire. In a way that would be confronted by the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is a stone with an inscription on it that was found in the city of Prien that was then in Asia Minor, now in Turkey. It's called the Calendar Inscription of Prien. And on that stone is inscribed something about this same Caesar Augustus that is mentioned in Luke 2, verse 1, who was the Caesar at the time of the birth of Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. Pay careful attention to it. The gods which have ordered all things and are deeply interested in our life have set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom they filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as Savior, both for us and for our descendants. The birthday of our God, Augustus, signaled the beginning of the gospel for the world. And that's not the only place where that kind of language is used of Caesar Augustus. His birth, the birth of Caesar Augustus, signaled the beginning of the gospel of the good news for the world. In those days, in those days, God sent His Son, the true Son of God, into the world. In those days when the religion of all the people of the entire empire of Rome was the religion of the worship of this man, Caesar Augustus, as God. When men spoke of the birth of Caesar Augustus as the beginning of the gospel, in those days God sent His Son to confront the arrogance of men. Don't think that when Mark, by inspiration, begins his gospel account this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that that's not purposeful in confrontation to this religion of the empire. Remember who the first recipients of the book of Luke and the book of Mark are. Luke 1, verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was the first recipient of the book of Luke. Theophilus was a Roman, and he was a Roman who worked for the Roman government. That's why he is called most excellent Theophilus. 
the Gospel of Mark was written from the city of Rome primarily to a Roman audience. And among all other things that these Gospel accounts are, the account of the birth and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark and Luke is a direct confrontation against the claims and worship of Caesar Augustus. A Caesar who gave expression to the greatness of human pride, as we shall see. Not only by allowing himself to be called Savior, and allowing his birth to be called the beginning of the Gospel for the world, but most egregiously, by giving himself the title, the Son of God. Making the recounting of the birth of Christ in the Gospels, among so many other things, also the recounting of a battle between the Son of God, lowercase letters, Caesar Augustus, and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, uppercase letters. That's what we look at this morning, and that's our theme. The Son of God, lowercase, versus the Son of God, uppercase. Well, notice first the claims of both of these. The claims of Caesar, the claims of Christ. To be the Son of God, to have a, a great kingdom, to have a gospel of peace, and to have all power. And then in the second point, we'll look at the outcome of this battle. Who wins? Who really has these things? And then third, we'll look to the future in the last battle between what Caesar is a picture of, the Antichrist, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God versus the Son of God. The claim, the outcome, and the last battle. One of the claims that Caesar Augustus, the Caesar Augustus of Luke 2 verse 1, made about himself was that he was the Son of God. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, perhaps you will remember from high school history class, was murdered famously by Brutus and Cassius on the Ides of March. 44 B.C. Not long after Julius Caesar was murdered, there was a massive comet that appeared in the sky. And the people of Rome started to say that that was Julius Caesar, the comet was Julius Caesar, that he was a god. And though he was killed on the earth, he was a god and was flying through the heavens. And that spread through the empire to the point where two years later, the empire itself declared as official Roman law that Julius Caesar was a god. And Julius Caesar was added to the pantheon of pagan gods that Rome worshipped. Now, of course, Julius Caesar was added to the pantheon of gods at the time when his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, was ruling. And it was not lost on Caesar Augustus that if Julius Caesar has been declared a god, 
then that makes me the Son of God. And he began to call himself Divi Filius, the Son of God. And he had coins minted with his face on the front side, on the back side, those words, Divi Filius, Son of God. And those coins were spread through the entire empire. Luke had some of those coins in his pocket. Mark probably did too. Everybody had these coins in their pocket, though they were never used in the temple. Caesar Augustus, son of God. Caesar used this title to secure the peace of Rome, uniting people under the worship of himself as a god. This is how the worship of the Caesars began. A practice, of course, that later in the Bible, in the book of Acts and beyond, and into the early New Testament church, is going to be such a trouble for the people of God, refusing to bow the knee to Caesar and to worship him and to call him Lord. Only Jesus may be called Lord. The church is going to be persecuted. But that worship of the Caesars, it begins here, about the time of Jesus Christ. And it became the national religion of the Roman Empire. One historian writes this, quote, Poets celebrated the divinity of Augustus, and across the empire, coins, monuments, temples, and artwork promoted the worship of Augustus. To many in the empire, Roman civilization brought stability and wealth. People were urged to have faith in their Lord Augustus the emperor, who had preserved peace. In the Roman imperial world, the gospel was the good news of Caesar having established peace and security for the world, end quote. And of course, from an outward point of view, if anyone looked like they could be the son of God, it was Caesar Augustus. His birth was a birth into wealth and power and standing his biological father was a senator in Rome. His adoptive father was Julius Caesar himself. He rose to great power, the position of greatest power in all the world, a power that had never been seen heretofore. Even his physical appearance was commanding. He ruled over the largest empire on earth, built great works, amassed great wealth, great books collected, and great houses of learning. And in the middle of his rule, tucked away in a little corner of his empire, in a cave filled with stinking animals, is born a peasant child with nothing, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in the feeding trough. Whose birth, Mark writes, was the beginning of the gospel, of the good news. For he, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of God. Of God. 
Who will you believe? Who was the Son of God? After all, this baby born in that major grows up to take this title upon himself, to claim himself to be the Son of God. It's not just others who wrote this about him. John 5, verse 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, says Jesus, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. John 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? John 10, verse 36, Thou blasphemest, speaking of the Pharisees saying to him, You are blaspheming me. You are blaspheming God. You're accusing me of blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Who will you believe? If ever there appeared that somebody born into the world was not the Son of God, it was this Jesus of Nazareth. Born from a line of peasants who come from the backwater town of Nazareth from whom everybody knows no good can come. Born to the poorest of the poor, of no concern to anyone in all the world. So of no concern that there is no room for him to even be born into the world. He has to elbow his way even into a cave to be born among cows and horses and donkeys and their feed and dung. In his lifetime, he arises to no position of earthly power among men. He accedes to no throne. He remains all of his days, in fact, a place where he cannot lay his head. He is despised and rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even his appearance is an appearance in which there is no beauty that men should desire him. He comes without pomp, Luther says, without violence, without estate, without money, without sword, without muskets. He disregards the great and mighty cities of Jerusalem and Rome. He chooses for his birthplace the poor and lowly Bethlehem. Poor and mean he is before the world. End quote. He claims to have a kingdom. But in outward appearance, at least, what is this kingdom? It is nothing like the kingdom that is ruled by Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus claimed to have a kingdom, and he rules in this kingdom all over the known world, from Great Britain in the northwest, to Africa in the south, to Asia in the east, to modern-day Russia in the northeast. Caesar reigns, a kingdom over all the world. And there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. All the known world at that time. It was a great kingdom, a kingdom you could see, a kingdom you could put on a map, a kingdom that had borders around it, a kingdom that had a massive register of citizens within it, citizens who could be taxed 
text as far away from Rome as Bethlehem. Yet this poor child born in Bethlehem claims to have a kingdom too. In fact, he claims to have a kingdom that is greater than the kingdom of Caesar. A kingdom whose reach is beyond the reach of the empire of Rome. The angel had said about him, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, all the nations and tribes and tongues on the earth, even beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. It was prophesied of him in Isaiah, that the earth shall be filled with his knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Old Simeon would say of him in the temple that he was a light to lighten the Gentiles, Gentiles all across the world. But where is this kingdom? Can you see it? Did he ever sit upon a throne in it? Can you map it out? Can you put borders around it? Caesar Augustus, the self-proclaimed son of God, claimed for himself a great kingdom, also preached that in his kingdom would be peace. Caesar had a gospel of peace. He claimed it, at least, and that his birth was the beginning of a gospel of peace. The people called him Savior for this, for this peace that he would bring his earthly might had established a fear throughout the land, a dread terror that created a peace, outward peace among human beings for a time, a peace that people in the Roman Empire valued and for which they called him the Savior. Men were to have a kind of faith in Caesar Augustus that he would bring them the kind of peace that they wanted They willingly called his birth the beginning of the gospel of peace for the world. Under Caesar's sword of fear, men did not dare rebel. Under Caesar's lavish and sinful lifestyle that he himself lived and that he promoted in the empire, people wanted the kind of peace that he had to offer. Caesar Augustus was a noted fornicator and adulterer, as so many of the Caesars were. And the society of Rome would be reflective. It was a peace that was the peace of the pursuit of sin and lust and pleasure. In his kingdom, it was a peace where war and strife would be prevented by the fear of the steel of his sword and the unity and that love of the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. But this Christ, who called himself the Son of God, and who claimed to have a kingdom greater than Caesar, he also preached a gospel that he called a gospel of peace. He called himself the Son of Peace in Luke 10, verse 6. 
Those who preached his gospel are said to have beautiful feet, for they preached the gospel of peace. Romans 10 verse 15. The people who believe this gospel have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6 15. In John 14 27, the good news of his gospel is this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The angels had said upon his birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Zacharias had prophesied that he would give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Did he bring peace? What peace have had those who believed his gospel? Have not so many been killed for his name's sake? Persecuted to the ends of the earth? Is not Hebrews 11, 36 through 38 still going on to this day? For those who believe his gospel? Trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. What peace? Caesar, who claimed to be son of God, to have a great kingdom, who preached a gospel of peace, also claimed to have all power. And indeed it looked like it for a time. He had defeated all of his enemies to rise to the position that he was in. Caesar sent his armies out to the north, to the east, and to the west, and no one could resist their force. Caesar Augustus had such power that when he spoke from Rome, the entire earth moved, it seemed. What power is this? That when Caesar Augustus makes a decree in Rome that all the world should be taxed, that half a world away in a small town of Nazareth, a poor man gets up with a nine-month pregnant wife and makes a, a four-day journey down to Bethlehem for the sole purpose of taking what little money he had out of his pocket and giving it to this Caesar in Rome. That's power. To rule over men's lives so that they will inconvenience themselves in order to give you their money. That's power. What of this Christ? He claimed to have all power too. Matthew 28, verse 18, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And yet what power had he? He was taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. Caesar Augustus' own soldiers pounded the nails into his wrists. People bow to him and call him Lord. 
But for how long did Caesar himself put those people into coliseums and have dogs and lions chew them to death for the entertainment of Roman citizens? Where is his power? Where is his army? Where is his force? Where is his might? Where is his powerful kingdom of peace? Whose claim seems right? But remember, beloved, remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had so long ago that the old prophet Daniel interpreted that dream of the golden-headed statue and the, and the silver chest and the legs of iron and bronze and clay in the feet. And don't forget that those legs of iron represented the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire of Caesar Augustus too. And that the old prophet had prophesied that just like the gold and the silver before it are crumbled, so this Roman Empire shall be crumbled. A stone will be cut out of the mountainside. Jesus Christ himself. And it will roll down that mountainside. And it will crumble that statue. And it will spread itself to the ends of the earth as a great and mighty kingdom. The kingdom of man. And that's what Rome pictured the kingdom of man would fall, for it's founded upon man. What's left of Caesar Augustus? And what's left of Caesar Augustus' kingdom? All you can see of Rome's kingdom all over the world are just a few ruins here and there, some stones falling down into the dirt. But the kingdom of this Christ, beloved, is alive and well and ever shall be world without end. Though you can't see it with the eye externally at first, but with the eye of faith, this kingdom spreads itself in and under the kingdoms of men to the four corners of the earth. It stakes its claim, not merely temporarily, to the outward allegiance of men but internally and eternally it stakes its claims to the minds and the hearts and the lives of its citizens. It's built with a power that comes from above that works in the heart and mind and souls of His own. This kingdom has a, a registry of citizens that is astounding. Caesar, Caesar's register was temporary and, and short-lived. Christ has a register of citizens whose names are written in the book of life all his own from the beginning of the world to the end of the world a kingdom that shall have no end the citizens manifest themselves by their confession by their life by coming together and worshiping and membership in faithful churches they come by receiving the sign of baptism upon himself, by confessing their faith and living and bowing the knee to him and serving him in all of their life. Go to Rome once and ask around. 
Where is the house that Caesar Augustus built? Where is his kingdom? And the only answer you will get is that here are a few stones that remain in here, or a few broken down pillars that lie in rubble. Ask, beloved. Where is the house that Jesus, the Christ, has built? And you will be pointed to faithful churches throughout the world worshiping this King in spirit and in truth. And one day in the new heavens and new earth, his kingdom will push up under the foundations of the kingdoms of men like, like a plant breaks through the earth. And for eternity, it will fill the land as the waters cover the seas. And in his kingdom, now in part and then fully, is in fact True peace. What if Caesar's gospel of peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, it was a facade, beloved, and a short-lived one at that. It was the mascara on Jezebel's eyes. A peace, a forced external peace for a time that overcame the self-seeking to a certain extent but that eventually crumbles under its own weight as the self-seeking becomes more valuable to men than any external peace that's been forced upon them. It's a peace that cannot reckon with the most serious war that there is in this life. The war between God and a people who have rebelled against Him. It cannot reckon with death. What of death? What of the war that death brings upon all who come into this world. A war in which death is constantly victorious. It takes here and there constantly as every day passes. The gospel of Caesar does nothing to it. All who were in his kingdom have died and he himself has succumbed to it. But this Christ his gospel of peace is a true good news and brings true peace. It deals with the root problem of the fact that we stand guilty before God, that we've sinned against Him, rebelled against Him, and are liable to receive judgment from Him for it. His is a gospel secured in His own blood as impoverished, we see a picture of the fact that he takes upon himself the poverty of our sin and guilt and bears it away in his crucifixion, suffering the punishment of hell itself, that there might be reconciliation for his people before this God, peace with God, and therefore peace with God, peace with those around us too. A peace that passes all understanding peace that is found nowhere else. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. A peace that conquers death. That deals with that enemy. And that overcomes it. 
and forces death, not now to be something that works against His people, but works for them. as a passageway to life that brings them into the very presence of God that removes them from all pain and suffering and sin and brings them consciously into the heavenlies. No. No. The beginning of the Gospel was not the birth of Caesar Augustus. But it was the birth of Jesus the Christ. Caesar's Gospel was, you will make me a son of God or I will crush you with my sword and my legions and my cavalry. Christ's Gospel is, I am the Son of God and therefore I will crush the head of the devil that I might make peace between you and God and make you sons of God in me. What of power? Caesar's power was limited and as temporary as his kingdom. And was not so much power as it appeared to be on the surface. Even his decree spoken of in Luke 2 verse 1 that all the world should be taxed. That when he speaks it, Joseph and Mary a world away get up and march down to Bethlehem at his word. Even that is not everything that it seems. Because behind that decree stands the power of this very child. Though he is yet in his mother's womb when it occurs, as to his person, he is God himself and has already decreed in eternity that Caesar will make this decree at the exact right time so that the Christ may be born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem as it has been foretold, unknown to Augustus, unknown to anybody else, but not unknown to the Holy Spirit. And this is the Holy Spirit's ultimate point. Caesar's decree is used by this child to send this couple to where he must be born. There was a decree long before Caesar came that said in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, I will move Caesar so that all the world shall be taxed and so that Joseph and Mary will come where they need to be, that the Christ may come into... That's power. That's power. When your decree stands behind and determines the decree of the most powerful man on earth, when the king's heart is in your hand to turn whithersoever you will it to be turned, and everything else Caesar does has been determined from eternity by this who is the Son of God for the establishing of his own kingdom worldwide. Caesar's Pax Romana is only a tool. Caesar is being used, his kingdom is being used to establish the Pax Christi and still is. All kingdoms of the earth are being used by him to establish his worldwide kingdom. That's power. The armies 
of Augustus have been defeated. They've come to nothing. But the armies of Christ still stand. The host of the angels that filled heaven at his birth are still doing his bidding throughout the world. The hosts of men, women, and children on the register of his citizenry speak his name. Pray for the coming of his kingdom. For he rules them with power from within, sweetly changing their mind and heart and will, opening their eyes to see so that with their entire life and their time and talent and treasure, they're working for the upbuilding of his kingdom. In the end, beloved, no one higher than Caesar Augustus himself gave him this title, Son of God. But God himself, the God of the whole earth who created the whole world, opened his mouth and declared over this Jesus of Nazareth. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And then proved it. As he raised him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God with power. But Caesar Augustus will not be the last one to attempt to usurp his title and to offer a counterfeit kingdom and a counterfeit gospel with a counterfeit power. And however many more there will be, they will all come to an end in one who will do better than Caesar himself had ever done and all others before him will do. Because ultimately, beloved, this history is typical of the final challenge of the pride of human beings before the face of the Son of God. Caesar Augustus is a type of the Antichrist who will appear at the end of the world and who will make all the claims that Caesar Augustus made even more who will be anti-Christ, who will be against Christ, but also set himself up in the place of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. He will declare himself to be the Son of God and therefore God himself. He will build a kingdom over all the earth, greater even externally than the kingdom of Caesar Augustus. In that kingdom, he will give a show of great, mighty power. And he'll preach an alternative gospel of peace found in him, a peace in the love of sin, sin without consequence. And again, and now for the final time, in the fullness of that time, God's going to send forth his son again, the second time at the ultimate height of man's pride and rebellion, and he will come and he will expose the counterfeit for what he is. He will expose his counterfeit kingdom and his counterfeit gospel and his counterfeit peace once and for all. And he will destroy him. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he will destroy the imposter by the breath of his mouth, all the while declaring, but you have only been upon in my hand. And I decreed every decree that you have made that I might show my power in you and my glory in the testimony of my saints. Don't you see? Don't you see what's going on here, beloved? In the recounting of Christ's birth. There is a challenge being issued. A challenge to Luke's audience, to Mark's audience. A challenge to all the world. Theophilus, before whom will you bow? You who labor under the authority of Caesar Augustus and pledge your allegiance to him, in whom will you lodge your hope, most excellent Theophilus? In Augustus, who claims to be Son of God, or in the Christ, who is the Son of God? In all of you Roman citizens in this empire, before whom will you bow? Whose kingdom will you trust in? Whose birth is in fact the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. And the same challenge comes right here to you and to me. Whose kingdom will you be given over to in your heart and in your life for the coming of whose kingdom will you pray? Your prayer will express your hope. It will express the longings of your heart. Come the kingdom of man with this kind of Caesar Augustus peace where I can live as I want without consequence at least for a time though it's all a mirage. And then death comes. Or thy kingdom come. Rule me so by thy word and spirit, because under thy rule is what's right and good and good for me. Build up and increase thy church throughout the world, because thy church is the expression of thy kingdom in this earth, and thy church is the greatest thing that could happen to this earth. And don't let anything defeat thy kingdom and bring thy kingdom to its final end, its glorious end, when it will be manifested world without end as the kingdom of peace that it is. Because that's my hope. And for that I live. In which kingdom are you trusting? Before whom do you bow? In whose gospel do you find peace? The kingdom of man or in the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? What do you see? 
when you peer over the edge of that manger and look at that little child. Shall we not follow the lead of one of Caesar's own soldiers? Charged by Caesar Augustus himself, son of Julius, God of Rome, with crucifying the Jesus of Nazareth. But who hearing the earthquake and all those things that were done, feared greatly, saying, truly, this man, not Caesar, this man was the son of God. Amen. Father, work thy word in truth into our mind and heart and give us a true and living faith. Thy kingdom come, Lord Jesus Christ, in us and in its final and fullest manifestation. All our hope is in thee. In Jesus' name, amen.